Hello and happy Thursday. Welcome everybody. I'm Bob Krell. I'm uh, the founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine and I'm the host of the show. So happy uh, that you're here joining us again on this uh, this uh, great afternoon. Well, actually, some of you it's afternoon, some of it's morning, um, depending on where you are. But we have a great show today. I'm super excited about our, our guest today and the topic, um, something I've, it's been near and dear to me. We're, we're going to be discussing some of the uh, aspects of healthy buildings versus green buildings and how they interplay. And I think that's just super important and really timely. So today's guest um, is uh, uh, actually just uh, really uh, has a wealth of knowledge. And uh, he's uh, Andrew Pace. He is the uh, Healthy Home uh, concierge and founder of the Green Design Center. It's a leading resource for homeowners and contractors looking to source products that are healthy and green uh, to receive expert consulting advice on designing and building healthy green homes. Andrew is also the host of the weekly Non-Toxic Environments podcast. He's been, he shows up everywhere. Um, their website is uh, thegreendesigncenter.com and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, but uh, without any further ado, I'd like to welcome uh, Andy. How are you? I'm well, Bob. How are you today? Uh, great, great. And it's like we had an interesting uh, pre-show conversation, and I, I'm I'm pretty excited to get into this. But I mean, my first my first question I've got to throw at you is the term uh, "healthy home concierge." I know other other <laughs> interviews they've, they've they've jumped in that. I jumped in that right away. Sure. That, that was actually the first thing that triggered me uh, when, I, when I saw that in your, in your promotional material. I was like, what is that? Yeah, you know, I think it's um, again, it's, it's a conversation starter. But when when you call yourself an expert in anything, that's some pretty big shoes to fill. And and so I, I would call myself a you know a, a paint expert, a flooring material expert, a building material expert. And when I started working with uh, a, a a PR publicist. Um, she's like, I like the word concierge because it looks like you're, you're help, you're guiding people to the right direction. You're guiding people to the right materials. And, and that, that, uh, name has sort of stuck over the last uh, year or two now. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that I've never heard that one before. So that's obviously mm -hmm. something you coined. Um, well, I, I think maybe others been using it, but, um, that's fine. You know, I think there, there needs to be more of me out there. That's for sure. There, there you go. You know, it's like we need to replicate ourselves because mm -hmm. as we discussed in the pre-show, there seems to be there's still a disconnect, right? There's there's yes. a big disconnect in this industry. It's 2022. And I swear, you know, I've been in the IQ industry since the, the mid 80s mm -hmm. and we have not progressed as much as we ha needed to. And the construction industry, certainly, especially in the residential home construction industry. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, there's been progress, certainly innovations. Right. But we're not where we need to be, are we? I don't think so. I, you know, I, I do a lot of work with clients in Europe, in Australia, New Zealand. And of course, you know, most of my work is here in North America, the, the building practices used around the world, you know, you always hear from somebody saying, Oh, they do things so much better in Europe. Well, yes and no, they, they do things differently because that's what they have access to there. They have access to a lot of stone and a lot of concrete and so forth here. Everything's wood. I, I think that, we can maybe utilize the best that we have knowledge wise and merge this together and actually make homes, build homes that are not only energy efficient and sustainable that can last several hundred years, but are actually healthy to live in, or at least not unhealthy to live in. It should be, you know, neutral. Um, you know, the oldest, the oldest structure in the United States dates back to about the 1600s. 
um, and it, you can't walk in it because it's too dangerous to walk in. You know, last time I was in Italy, I stayed in a villa that was built in the 1400s and it's still an operating hotel. So yes, there are things we can do to improve, but um, I think that the industry is finally starting to get what customers are asking about and not across the board, but I, I believe that uh, there are signs that there will be drastic improvements in the next few years. I mean, there's a question about resilience, you know, and clearly in other parts of the world, especially in Europe, right? The structures have been there for literally thousands of years mm -hmm. and, um, and still standing. And, uh, you know, I, I doubt that there's many structures in the United States that will, you know, like you mentioned one that's from the 1600s, but yeah. there, there aren't many that are, that really are much more than a hundred, 115 years old <laughs> that correct. are, that are operational. You know, there's some maybe. That's right? correct. Well, I'm a big believer in in uh, insulated concrete form construction for a reason, because if you look at, um, you know, the Colosseum in Rome was built 2,000 years ago out of concrete, and it's still standing today. Um, wood structures just don't last as long. Uh, now, this may change in the uh, now that we are uh, working on mass timber buildings that use better production methods and better uh, drying methods and so forth. But I, I still think that uh, the future of construction in the country is going with uh, a more uh, substantial type of building material like concrete, concrete block. That makes total sense. Um, in, in the pre-show, we discussed, you know, the terminologies, you know, like healthy versus green, obviously. Yeah. I think maybe some people see them as synonymous, but they're clearly not. I mean, these are these are two separate terms because green means a little bit more than than just green. And the term green has been overused and milked, you know, and greenwashed to death. But <laughs> right. but I mean, you're talking in terms of building perf the performance of the building, right? Is a per high performing Correct. building is a green building? Apparently. Well, that's right. I, you know, sort of. back back when I got started in the business, which is 1992, the word green was just a color. You know, now it's a it seems to be a way of life, um, but again as as the the terminology sort of evolved um green became this uh blanket blanket phrase or word for energy efficient global environmentally correct sustainable building or material in that description the term human health or human friendly really got completely lost and, you know, with the, the creation of the LEED program by USGBC, uh, with the creation of um, Green Globes and, and the, the, the NAHB program and all these different programs that are out there to help determine what is a green structure, uh, again, human health was kind of forgotten about. And the reason for that is, is that there is no, there's no metric to measure what is healthy because what is healthy to one person may not be healthy to the next. And so it's very difficult to market something that really has no uh, marketability in that regard. You can't say we just build a healthy home because somebody will say, based on what? Yeah, exactly. Right. How, well, what are the parameters that uh, establish yeah. that it's a healthy home? Right. And for me, I would say, well, based on the fact that my customers are living there and not having any health issues, that to me is a healthy home. Yeah, but see, but the problem is that's somewhat subjective. It is, and it's and it's hard to replicate, right? Mm -hmm. and, and 
that's another interesting point because you, you you have a whole philosophy on that. Like you're not necessarily what's healthy for one is not necessarily healthy for another. Correct. That's correct. You know, and, and you approach it a little different. I, I do. I do. I think that I certainly look at certain things that make sense. You know, we want to keep our overall amount of VOCs down in a, in a structure, right? Because we all understand that some VOCs are hazardous to humans. But the key phrase there is some, not all. You know, you peel the skin off of an orange, you're now releasing 850 grams per liter of VOCs. It's not going to hurt us. But yet the industry looks at all VOCs the same. All VOCs are bad in the eyes of the industry. And so if we, if we chase that number, if we reduce that number, all we're doing is giving uh, an allowance to the industry to use chemicals that are not deemed VOCs. And you're talking, T, they're using TVOC as a parameter, the total volatile organic compound. That's right. Yeah, That's okay. right. And so out of the 92,000 chemicals that are used in building materials and home goods, how many of them are actually VOCs? I don't know that answer. <laughs> <laughs> like 287. Okay. Um, if you go to the EPA's website, you'll, you can download a, a list of dozens and dozens of carbon-based molecules that are readily vaporized at room temperature that don't actually have a, um, a uh, reaction to nitrogen and UV and create smog. Therefore, they're deemed as unregulated VOCs. So we're, we allow those to be used in materials. And anything else that's not a VOC, there is no regulation for beyond the you know the the common like red lists that you see in in uh, a lot of the um um specifications you can't use anything in the, in the red list uh but there's so many other chemicals that are used that we have absolutely no idea uh what the uh, health effects are in humans but we focus on these very small lists of vocs and red list chemicals and give complete approval to everything else and and uh we don't have to be told what they are well there, there's another point there too is is the synergistic effect among these chemicals because we also the way we look at everything right from the osha uh you know permissible exposure limits and the you know the acgh tlvs uh they're, they're all based on individual constituents they're not you don't they don't have that there's and it's really hard i i would say to probably come up with a a profile by we have a little of this and a little of this and a little of this which is what we have mm -hmm. it's know? impossible I mean, yeah think of the medical industry when you're going to your doctor they'll say all right what what medications are you taking they want to make sure that you're not having any interaction between your prescriptions even your right. vitamins and, and off-the-shelf items in a building i've seen estimates anywhere from five thousand to fifteen thousand different chemicals in the air just from the construction processes. And, and it's not just from the building materials themselves, but it's from the interaction between mm -hmm. what's already been released and now how does it react in the air and create right. new chemical compounds? And that's that's happening constantly. That that's one of my concerns as an IQ guy is that you know you have certain uh, professed air cleaning technologies or air purifying purifying mm -hmm. technologies, right. you know, that you know, use whatever, you know, hydroxyls, uh you know, any number of different things, you know, sure. the, the du jour. And, you know, they always they always come out with something to the effect of you come out with like mountain clean air at the end of it. And it's like, no, you don't. That's not the way chemistry works. <laughs> you know, when you break things down, you get new compounds. It's like, come on, you know, it's 
Not yeah. Accurate. Well, again, with everything, we need to look at it as anything in moderation. And uh, at the end of the day, ventilation is key. Yeah. No question about it. So we have a couple. Of, we have a couple of questions already, and and I actually want to show them because they're they're germane in what we're talking about now. Is it really that simple? This green versus healthy. Health has always been associated with the medical community, and they don't know anything about indoors. Green is a pretty safe word. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on that one? Well, you know, I I like the question because again, associate in the medical community, but think of the fact that every manufacturer of um paint for instance has been marketing green green friendly green safe um eco-friendly but yet just about every major manufacturer of paint in the last 10 years has has either been enjoined in a class action lawsuit or fined by the ftc for duping the public about what a voc actually is mm -hmm. and so it is really that simple the, i mean the description is simple Green is not necessarily healthy to humans. Healthy to humans is by definition green. It's it's environmentally friendly. You know, I, I like to break it down to this. What good is saving the environment if we're still poisoning all the occupants? And well, so yeah, that, that's the whole reason we have indoor environments to begin with, to get us from the outdoors and put us in what would be considered safer and uh, more palatable environments. <laughs> We're trying mm -hmm. to create that. Well, and, and we spend 90 percent of our lives indoors, and, and that's only gotten greater in the last couple of years because of the pandemic. And so now we're really forced into being in this uh, enclosed area and we have to decide is it actually healthier inside of the home or outside of the home? Yeah, I, I, that's a good point. We have, we have a, we have a, this is more of a comment than a question, but I want to put it up there anyway. Uh, thanking you, Andy, for helping her understand the difference between green and healthy and helping her stay as healthy as possible. <laughs> I paraphrase nice. it. It's one of your clients, I take it. Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, I'm working with her right now. We are building a, um, a really nice new home in a new, like what's called a pocket subdivision. Uh, and it's the first home in this entire subdivision that's being built to a healthier standard. And it's been a learning curve for the entire construction team, but they've, they've, um, they've, they've faced it and, and uh, they really embraced it. And I think that, and the home is almost done. Uh, everybody's learned a lot. And uh, most important, the client is going to be living in a in a healthier space. Uh, this is going to be the home that she retires in. We we in pre-show we talked a little bit about the the terminology of human friendly versus eco friendly. Yeah, and that, that's a, that's another not so subtle point, but it's an important point, right? Making sure. making the, the distinction between the two. So yeah, so I look at give your definitions that. on that. Yeah, I look at that as as almost like you know back in the day we used this term greenwashing. Right. This is when a manufacturer or a, a, a service provider would use words and phrases to sort of oversell how environmentally friendly their their product or service is. Eco-friendly versus healthy. If you look at something like we mentioned this in, in the pre-show, compact fluorescent light bulbs. You know, when those came out and we were forced to use those over incandescents, it was so we, we would reduce the amount of energy use. In our, in it was our substantial. Home. You save seventy five percent ish. Oh yeah, so, you know, yeah. Sure, you save quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens if you drop that compact fluorescent on a carpet, a, a carpeted floor? Well, 
uh, state of Maine did an enormous amount of research on this and found that you'll never get the mercury out of that carpeting. Never. Meaning to save a few cents in energy, we've now spent $2,000 in new carpet. It just, you know, those are the unintended consequence of trying to do the right thing. This happens a lot in the eco versus healthy world. You know, we give up health issues. We give up our health benefits in order to be more eco-friendly. And what I'm trying to teach my clients is, is to take that back. Let's do things that are human friendly first. Cause at the end of the day, that's really all that matters is if we're gone, the environment will still exist, right? Yeah. Um, earth is not going anywhere at least for a few more million years or for a few more billion probably. Yeah. yeah. The, planet, the planet always survives or, you know, exactly. to a certain point, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, right. for quite, a, quite a few millennia. Uh, and but if we're you poisoning know, ourselves off, you know, what's, what good is this? Well, I mean, yeah. And the, the problem is, is there's already been six episodes where, you know, more than 75% of the life was eradicated on this planet. I mean, I, people, you know, people don't think about stuff like that. This, this, this story's happened before. Things have killed mm -hmm. themselves off, you know. Or, oh, but, yeah. but we're we're unique, I think, is we're the first species that are actually doing it to ourselves. Most of the other ones That's were true. from external forces that caused it. Yeah, yeah. The 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 giant meteor heading towards the 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 Earth is basically caused by us. Yeah, and we're, our we're it. And our <laughs> desire to build cheaper, faster, and have everything we want at arm's length. So, so, I mean, I mean, you, the example you just gave you know, with the, uh, you know, with the uh, CFL bulb, you know, crashing on mm -hmm. a carpet, I, I think it's important, you know, to me anyway, one, one of the points I would think about is that, yes, a $2,000, you know, replacement and cleanup of that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's what it might, would probably cost to clean that up, replace all the carpet. But the reality is the average consumer doesn't know that. Oh, no, they don't. They're, they're not. They don't even realize there's a mercury hazard created by that CFL shattering in their in their Not home. at all. And, and again, it's the industry not um, either admitting to this at the beginning because they're trying to sell something that is, you know, really not great. You know, it, so I'll, I'll give the example of the paint industry because I know this industry probably the best out of all the things that I work on. When zero VOC paints first came out in the mid 90s or the early to mid 90s, nobody liked them, right? The painting contractors hated them because they had horrible coverage. They, they were like water. They didn't go on very well. They made a mess. Uh, manufacturers of paint were literally making tens of thousands, if not more, gallons of product to never be sold, to actually sit in the warehouse so that they were allowed to continue to manufacture and sell the high VOC items that they make. You know, VOCs are regulated at the manufacturer level, very much like the cafe standards for automobiles. Mm -hmm. So overall, they have to have this average that's lower every year. So, you know, back then, nobody would buy these, these paints because they just didn't perform well. Mm -hmm. And at some point, Somebody in the in the painting industry decided if we could only market these to play upon people's emotions, we're going to instead of calling them zero VOC, because 99.9% .9 of the general public has no idea what a VOC actually is. Right. And, and why it may or may not be dangerous. Mm -hmm. But they started marketing as eco friendly, air safe, um, green. Uh, all these buzzwords that actually yeah, don't have are, any merit to them. Yeah, I mean, these are words that, these are fluff. These words right. don't mean anything. Exactly. No meaning. And so 
and then they realized, you know what? It worked. People were being uh, somewhat duped or marketed into buying these eco-friendly materials, thinking they're getting something that's actually healthier for them. Mm-hmm. And it's not. Uh, I would argue that some of the old-fashioned oil-based, you know, linseed oil-based paints are probably healthier than some of the newer uh, zero VOC paints. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, think about, it, but that's been a that's been a Madison Avenue tactic since day one. You know, like the term virtually. I love virtual. Virtual. You know, yeah, this right. is virtually VOC free. Yeah. You know, which means <laughs> it's like being VOC free, but not really. Right. Know? Yeah. You right. Know, and, and and again, you you make a good point there. The VOC. It, it, that shouldn't be the only parameter, you know, it's like, you have it, to look it at shouldn't be, but yeah. for many years that, that was the, um, that was a sticking point. The fact that it was a zero VOC paint, mm-hmm. nobody really understood that until somebody said, let's market it as being eco-friendly and healthy. Okay. Healthy to who? Healthy to what? Right. Um, years ago, there was a, a, a newsletter called environmental building news. Uh, a fellow by the name of Alex Wilson wrote this, um, and I remember an article from the 90s that he published that said that he tested some of the early zero VOC paints and actually found that they released high levels of formaldehyde. Great. Well, how is that? You know, formaldehyde was taken out of paints in the late 70s. Well, manufacturers realized that if you add in these 10 to 15 different chemicals, in the can, you can't detect it, but when you put it on the wall and it starts to cure, it creates formaldehyde during the curing process. It's just part of the, the, the chemical interaction. Exactly. Well, I'm mean, just like, you know, you think about it, lead-based paints, which are still used in, in industry, right? The bridges yep. are still painted with them in, in the maritime industries, yes. um, you know, everywhere because they're very durable. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, the lead was also a, a key antimicrobial component. Oh, yeah. And it, it really works so that, you know, it's funny. You walk into a building with lead, you know, it still has lead paint that's exposed. You usually don't have mold growth on it, even a building that's all moldy because exactly. the lead paint was a pretty good retardant. So it's, there's always like for every action, there is sometimes an, un, you know, undesired uh, reaction. You know, exactly. like you, you, you take something out and you end up with something worse. Well, uh, and that happened again with the paint industry with the zero VOC formulations. You know, people don't realize that VOCs. Uh, these carbon-based molecules in paint actually do some really good things too, like make the paint easier to apply, cover better, uh, better flow rate, more longevity, mm-hmm. better color retention, all these things. And it's taken a good 15 years for the paint industry to invent new additives to give a similar performance to what they had way back when. Well, that's been the the uh, the same is true with with uh, floor finishes too, right? Not just paints, right? You know the, oh, yeah. uh, the 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 coatings you put on your hardwood floors, you know, sure. typically were oil based or they were you know pre- pretty strong off gassing. The point where you know, when you had hardwood floors refinished, you couldn't really be in the house for a day or two. It was so bad. exactly. And, and now they've you know, and the there's the same problem. The the formulations that didn't have that off gassing had a tendency not to be durable. Right. But right. that's not the not that's not really true anymore. No, it's it's come a long way. That's for sure. Um, nowadays, if you find a, a floor finisher that doesn't use a water-based product as one of their standard uh, options, uh, I would think they're very few and far between now. Well, I'd even argue if if you don't find a floor finisher that understands that they should set up some containments when they're sanding inside of a house that's occupied in other areas and uses sure. HEPA filtration and, and actual indoor environmental engineering controls as part mm-hmm. of their protocol, instead of dusting the entire house with fine uh, wood dust and uh, fi- oh, yeah. poly finish. 
that's yeah, that's another argument yeah we, run yeah, don't but, walk away <laughs> yeah 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 so we we have uh, well actually our editor susan valenny threw this up there so i want to i want to put this out are you just a one-man movement or uh <laughs> what other groups are you working with to push your message forward because your message well, is a really important message uh i think that there is there are more than uh just myself out there but uh one of the organizations that i was on the board of directors of a while back was the building biology institute and I would say out of all of the trade associations that are out there, that's probably the one group that really understands the difference between green and healthy. You know, they're the ones who are essentially creating the framework on how to build and remodel to eliminate um, EMR in the home, uh, how to eliminate Wi-Fi uh, microwaves throughout the home. They really understand, again, the difference between just building a green home that's energy efficient and a healthy home, something that people can live and thrive in. And EMR, electromagnetic radiation, right? I mean, right. I just, I'm just, for some people, you know, this is one of the problems that all of us in the industry tend to do is we're yep. inundated with acronyms and we tend to throw them around. I know. I, 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 I know hate I'm guilty it. I of it myself. I'm, guilty. <laughs> I'm totally guilty of it. I'm totally guilty of it. So here's, here's another question from one of our... Uh, viewers uh jackie r writes uh, do you see a role for public health departments in informing the public on how to have healthier homes or healthy homes i really do uh, I, I believe that this is a uh, a missed opportunity so far for public health departments and i'll say this because back in 2018 uh, i did a series of presentations at the lead and healthy homes conferences around the world around the, the country and so I was driving from location to location doing these presentations. And in my audience would be all of these public health officials. And they're there to learn about lead remediation and asbestos and sometimes mold. I started talking about chemical off-gassing. I even brought a piece of equipment in that we have exclusive uh, access to. It's called a FRAT system, formaldehyde release attenuation test. And I brought this test there. And I actually took things like paint and nail polish and flooring and I performed tests during my presentation and after the pre before the presentation was over I'd give you the results of how much formaldehyde are in these common everyday things that are found in a lot of these um, a lot of the public housing and, and low-income housing and so forth and their jaws would drop but then they'd say but but what do we do? How, how do we move forward? It's almost like too much information for them. So I think there is a way that we could get to uh, creating some type of, um, of a, um, a checklist. I hate to use that because that we've been putting problems with checklists before, but at least to say that people who are living in, in um, low-income housing and HUD housing and uh, habitat homes, generally don't have access to the best health care in the world either. Sure, sure. And so underserved um, they have immune systems that are probably far more compromised than just the average person. Mm -hmm. But yet we're going to, again, the unintended consequence of trying to do the right thing, let's put them in housing that's, that is, it's full of toxic off-gassing. And so I pointed this out and I think what I, what I did was I, I kind of, you know, poked the bear a little bit and the the pushback was oh we'll never be able to to regulate this so i'm not even interested in learning more yeah that's uh pretty much ostrich head in the sand uh mindset it is 
It is. It's absurd. And, and and it's true. I mean, you're definitely you're you're touching on a really uh, important point about the disparities amongst the different, you know, the different demographics mm-hmm. in this country and around the globe and, and what what they're faced with as far as health outcomes, their housing conditions. I mean, all, all this stuff is just really, really we, we did a, a big feature article on it in the magazine about a year mm-hmm. or a little over a year ago. And uh, it, it's just alarming. It's it, it's really the people that are the most underserved te- seem to be the ones that have, you know, the just the worst access to everything. Right. And they'd have and no I, resources to change it. And I have nothing against organizations like Habitat because I think they do incredible things. Uh, but when you get habitat homes being built out of materials that have been donated by distributors and suppliers and manufacturers a lot of times these aren't the the healthiest materials that they make they're yeah they're not the, given their best necessarily correct <laughs> correct know? and so again yeah. I, I feel guilty uh being involved in projects like that where i know that people are being moved into unhealthy homes now if you look at it from a standpoint of public health a lot of these materials that are being regulated lead you know mold um water issues so forth there's money in it right now there there are funds available from uh, municipalities and from mm-hmm. the federal government uh to assist in in either the avoidance of those things or the removal of of those mm-hmm. but when it comes to something like formaldehyde which is the the one chemical that i focus on almost exclusively when it comes to indoor air quality because it's found in so many things and it's mm-hmm. so dangerous formaldehyde is completely forgotten about and you know i find it when i do testing of homes i find it in carpeting i find it in wood flooring i find it in cabinetry paints you name it uh but again there's no federal funding available to assist in the removal of this As a matter of fact there's no there is no push on a on a grand scale to remove that out of the building industry because it's used so much. Yeah, and and, and even the, there's not even really a great consensus on what levels are acceptable, right? You, mm-hmm. you know, you've got California's carb standards are more stringent than the rest sure. of the country. EPA attempted to push through a more stringent standard that by EU standards would still be considered pretty lax, you right. know. Oh, yeah. And and the pushback is just horrific, you know, trying to, it is know, to stop them from implementing these things. Yeah, at one time, this is probably about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago at a usgbc conference i heard some speaker talking about how we import uh well over you know two to four million sheets of plywood formaldehyde urea formaldehyde based plywood from china every year china does not allow the use of those products in their own governmental buildings that's fascinating Uh, isn't it yeah isn't it well i mean you know for you know for years uh you know we were exporting asbestos too um exactly exactly which is special right that's you know you get into that whole thing the legacy (laughs) asbestos that everybody seems to think has been resolved you know and only i think the real estimates now are we had a guest on a few weeks back that i think the actual estimates are less than 20 percent of the legacy asbestos is even gone and we're still bringing asbestos-laden products into the united states every yes, we day are. well it, again if you look at that list i mentioned this before ninety-two thousand chemicals roughly that are available uh for use in building materials and home goods mm-hmm. out of that list we know about three percent uh we know the toxicological effects of about three percent we have no idea what the other 97 percent of those chemicals do to the human body 
Um, the other thing is in the history of um, the chemical approval process, how many chemicals have actually been taken off the market? It's like less than 10. Yeah, there's not there's not many. I mean, not not much activity has been, you know, on that whole list that mm -hmm. EPA, you know, apparently has the purview to regulate asbestos mm -hmm. being on that list as well. Yeah, right. there's very few of those components. Exactly. I, I think it's a lot less than 10. I think it's like five or six. Right. I think it's what well, I think I think like several of them are actually derivatives one and another. But yeah, right. you're right. I mean, it's it's a very small list. And you know, formaldehyde, we all know it's a carcinogen. Sure. Yeah. Why are we allowed to still use it? You know, why is it found? I, I did testing of, of um, vape cartridges and found that vape smoke contains toxic levels of formaldehyde. But we're allowed to use them. Uh, yeah. I, well, I mean, you know, well, welcome to the way things are done. I mean, we, we could go mm. across the line and start talking about, uh, you know, uh, personal care products. Right. Right. I mean, that's like we, we did articles on that and, and, and coverage on that where you talk about the Wild West. That stuff is just all voluntary regulated. It's regulated yes. by the industry itself, which means that there's tons of carcinogens in lipsticks and oh, yeah. lotions and all, you know, and all, all the body care products you use, you know, body right. washes and all that stuff. This stuff's full of garbage. It is. You know, the Environmental Working Group is doing a good job of actually starting to list some of the good ones and some of the bad ones and so forth. But even with that. You know, we've uh, we've looked at a lot of the personal care products that they have listed as being safe, and some of them actually do off-gas, and they do off-gas formaldehyde. And that's because I think they look at it from an, an ingredient list first, right? Um, right, as as opposed to how they actually interact exactly. when, they're, when they're being used. And, and exactly then, right. And then how they're actually being used, because people don't necessarily follow the labels on anything, you know, cleaning products, whatever, you know. So it's right. like, well, what is the well, yeah, real if, world If one usage? coat is great, three coats must be better, you know. You know? It's crazy. We have, an, we have another question. I think it's right. changing our our thought a little bit here but shannon's asking are mold tests by many of the mold remediation companies accurate uh, and is there a is there a best way to test for mold i want to hear your opinion on it i've got a whole buttload of opinions on this one. oh i'm sure you do and, and let me give you my opinion uh based upon uh what i've seen over the last several years um i believe that no one test is the best way i think you need to need to do especially if you find start finding mold in a certain test i would do multiples i'm a big believer in the more information we have the better we have to um to use this information and be able to come up with a way to move forward i've i've worked with clients who have done you know prism tests you know the home air check product uh i have worked with ermi tests and and hurts me tests and so on and so forth it really kind of comes down to what you see, what you don't see. Um, if if you're getting, if you have visible mold growth, and it's not just you know simple mildew that can be wiped off, but it's actually in a surface. I that's where I think ermi testing is very very crucial. If you don't have any visible growth, but you did a mold test anyway, and you find a, a large amount of mold, a very high number. Uh, now you're looking at doing some investigative work, and that's going to require some some hands-on, you know, opening up some walls and looking in the ductwork. 
So I mean, I, I, so I'd argue, you know, first of all, the, the ERMI, well, ERMI, I guess, is a test. It's a protocol that was developed by EPA um, that, in my opinion, has been like the, the scale, the ERMI scale is has been misused, as have some of the other derivatives of that scale. Okay. I mean, it's based on a qPCR analysis, which is a mm -hmm. piece, you know, and everybody's familiar with PCR now since the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it's a DNA-based analysis, right. um, which is very accurate. If you have a reference you know, reference point, it, it's right. super accurate. So PCR analysis is is, is a good protocol. Uh, the premise behind what was done in the army is taking more of a, uh, a conglomerate type test, you know, taking like a, a dust sample and right. analyzing overall for historical what's going on in the property, which I think there's value. I, I think there's a lot of value in that if you're doing the first snapshot to see is, you know, what's the historical content of the, of the settled particles that are in the space. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. The problem in my mind is that that army scale is wrong. I mean, I just, mm. I will flat out say that those numbers don't make a lot of sense to me as mm. a professional having used, you know, technology and sampling. And, but, but I, I will also pick on almost everything. If you're taking air samples <laughs> in a space for mold, it's a snapshot test. Typically exactly. you're doing spore traps, it's five minutes, even a culture, yep. uh, you know, like a single stage bio impactor with a Petri dish, that's still mm -hmm. a five, three minute sample. Right. And, and it's only taking, collecting, a, you know, a couple cubic feet of air in a very small mm -hmm. area. And then right. people extrapolate that to mean like 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, a big, a larger area than it's actually sampling. And even the analysis is subjective. So where I'm going is, you know, and this, I guess, you know, back to our question here, uh, Shannon, I, 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 there's no great methodology out there that's like a fail-safe thing you can just use. Correct. What you have to have is you have to have professional, you know, somebody has to understand what this stuff means. Right. And it's more than just a test, right? I mean, I guess you start with the test maybe, but somebody has to interpret what's going on and you're looking for more things, right? You're, I mean, you would agree with this, right, Andy? As far uh, 100%. as moisture issues in the building, if there's oh, yeah. mold, mold is a symptom. It's not the problem. The problem is a moisture problem. Correct. So. Correct. And, and so this is why I say that the more information we have, the better. The person uh, who's actually conducting the tests, this is where um, can, can make or break whether those results are even worth it or not, right? Uh, the, totally. the, um, if you look at a scale, like a 24 hour scale, if there was a way and there are ways that you can actually measure your air for pollutants continuously for a 24 hour scale, you're going to find that during the day, that number goes vastly up and vastly down. And then it kind of comes back again because it's going to change based upon temperature, humidity, air movement, yeah, who's totally going dynamic. in and out of the house. It's totally dynamic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so that's, the, that's I think probably you take a snapshot. You're looking at one slice of that. And, exactly. And the, so I, my, I guess my, my uh, takeaway, you know, with, especially with air sampling is right. that if you've, if you have a high level that you detect in an air sample, it's probably there, you know, except for the extreme case where the sampler is either unethical and skewed it intentionally, or right. they really cross-contaminated somehow. But for the most part, you don't get false positives. What you do get is undercounts in air samples all yes. the time and right. misses. You miss. I agree. Yeah, I agree. So that's, it's so, a problem. Let me uh, just apologize. I, I, I'm trying to make my camera be a little less um, <laughs> fuzzy 
for some reason. There we go. Oh, you're in autofocus. Here we go. Nice. Look, look, so Pat, uh, Pat's this. Oh, Pat. Hey, Pat. Pat's up in Alaska. So it's like uh, uh, six hours earlier there uh, or five hours. So he's saying Good for morning. mold sampling, using labs that analyze 100% of the sample is key. And using labs that read 25 or 30% and multiply it out is wrong. And he's talking mm-hmm. about spore traps because there's a lot oh, yeah. of laboratories that do a partial trace yeah. of the spore trap analysis mm-hmm. so as subjective as the spore trap is and this is one of the things i always teach in my classes too i mean you know you're taking this two cubic feet of air two and a half cubic feet of air for five minutes in one little spot and you're you know and you take a couple of them in a building and you think you know the building somebody's mm-hmm. reading it on a tick sheet you know and they're you know they're coming out with their you know under a microscope they're counting <laughs> things so as you can get that wrong yep. you know it comes back to the consultant the consultant sees the report but they only looked at 25 percent of the stuff that was skewed to begin with like, I know. I agree. I know. It's, yeah, I, th- this and this is a problem. I think everybody's trying to save time and save money and come up with uh, quick and easy answers. And unfortunately, it's a lot of times, most times, there's not a quick and easy answer uh, to move forward on this. To- totally agreed. Um, you know, so we, we talked a lot about building materials, but we're running out of time. We need more, we need another show, first of all, Andy. Yes. Because uh, this this is going way too quick. I- I'm looking <laughs> at the clock going, oh, there's so many points I want to cover. Um, you know, so we talked about materials. We talked a little bit about products as far as right. some of, you know, I mean, obviously, you're predominantly your focus and your consultancy and the stuff that you do with your organization um, mm-hmm. is dealing with new construction, right? You know, so that's what you're doing with the green design. I would say Center. for the most part, yes. Um, now that's also cyclical. I think that uh, as mortgage rates go up and, and uh, um, cost and availability is, is uh, becoming a problem, I'll start to do more remodeling projects. Uh, but to me uh, it's, it's all, it's, it's, I, I treat things very similarly between remodeling and new construction. The bigger issue with remodeling though, especially if somebody's living in the home while it's being done is we really need to be concerned about every aspect of the process. You know, in new construction, there are things that we can kind of not worry about as much because uh, there's nobody living there at the time. But uh, in remodeling, we really need to be careful. Um, so yes, and I, I would say this, that I focus on, toxicity of materials um yes every client now is is concerned about mold concerned about energy efficiency and so forth but for me i really focus on the toxicity of the building materials used and how that impacts the the human occupants 90 percent of the toxic off-gassing or the dangerous off-gassing that you'll face inside of a built structure once you move in will come from the things you see and touch on a daily basis. That would be things like your flooring materials, your wall finishes, uh, your cabinetry and uh, millwork, and then your own personal furnishings and furniture, uh, window treatments, artwork, clothing, things like that. The last 10% of any chemical off-gassing to worry about in the home will come from things behind the walls, above the ceiling that we will never see. From the interstitial so spaces. As, yeah. yeah, so it's, it's not as much of a concern, but we need to really take some time on it at the outset because you have one shot at it. Mm-hmm. Well, and no. and that's really that's that's part of your whole you know design of how you you, you do that. I know the uh, National Institutes uh, Inst- Institute of Standards and Technology NIST has a uh, and I'm going to 
botch because I can't remember the acronym for it, but it's it's basically a research house that simulates a four family living in a uh, just a small house with a garage uh, mm-hmm. on their campus in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And we, we spent a lot of time there. So this it was predominantly for energy research. They, it was the energy research lab, but they started doing a lot of indoor air quality stuff. So they, they have all this robotic stuff and automated things that simulate activities. So there's no people mm-hmm. here, but they got heaters that heat up in rooms, lights turn on, showers start, washing machine mm-hmm. runs, you know, all this, all this stuff's all automated from the control center. Right. But they started looking at what's happening with the building components in the wall detail like to, mm-hmm. your, to your point of the interstitial stuff, which really has not been analyzed that much. No. They, those things are analyzed by themselves in test chambers. Right. And that's how the research is done, but n- not in a real application where it's in a wall detail and the mm-hmm. sun's beating on it for two years or four years. And what's right. happening now, what's getting into the occupant space. Exactly and they, they're they're right. doing some remarkable research on that there at NIST. Well, and that's wonderful because we need more. We we need more information. Again, the more information we have, the better conclusions we can come to. Um, you know, science is is never settled, mm-hmm. and no matter what you want to hear about, you know, climate change issues and so forth, science should never be settled. We should always be questioning it. Let's come up with better ideas. Right. Let's come up with a better way to do things, and most importantly, let's let's actually come out with ideas that are friendlier to the human occupants of these buildings. Yeah, that, that's an interesting concept. You know, you you talked uh, you know a little bit, you know, about um, the uh, you know introducing, you know, like how how do you, you know when I, I guess coming up with what the what the right parameters are for a given client. You know, like one right. size doesn't fit all, right? right so right. you know, healthy or green or you know whatever terminologies mm-hmm. you're talking about, right. every client has a specific set of parameters that they're right. hoping to achieve right so and right. that i in the pre-show we discussed a little and i, I think we touched on it here but i, I really want to get step back into that a little bit sure. because you seem to have a unique approach that you you don't do a one-size-fit-all approach i don't i learned years ago that you can't um you know I, I got started in this business so long ago like i said before that when green was just a simple color uh, but let me explain it this way any given day in my showroom i'll have three different types of customers come in and and ask for help. The first customer comes in and says, we are building a new home. We've got a seven-year-old with autism and uh, she cannot be around any um, chemical off-gassing because it seems to exacerbate um, her, her symptoms and and, and it does. So I need, we need help in picking out materials that are free of chemical off-gassing. So that's customer number one. Customer number two walks in and says, and this happened to me several years ago, I've been on this earth for 55 years. I've been a burden to the earth for 55 years. I want to buy an existing home, completely remodel it using recycled and repurposed materials. I want to go to Habitat Restore and get my cabinets and my countertops and so forth. Can you help me? Third customer walks in and says, I want to build the home with the lowest carbon footprint. Now, out of those customers, which one's right? Which one's wrong? Of course, they're all right in their own way. They all have, first of all, a different view of what green means to them. Mm-hmm. This is why the term green uh, has to be defined. Sure. So I define it as what is your degree of green? First customer's degree of green is human health. The second customer's degree of green is uh, uh, sustainability. The third customer's degree of green is environment. Mm-hmm. Now, even focus even further now on the human health aspect, which is where I come from. 
what affects them the most. The first question I ask to a customer who wants to build a healthy home is, are there any known health issues amongst any of the people living in the home? Oh, sure. Well, you know, my son has um, mast cell activation syndrome, or, you know, all of us got poisoned by mold in our last house, or somebody has uh, dysautonomia. I mean, so I look at that and, and it helps me create now a mental checklist of what we need to do during the, the um, design development phase of this home. And this is where the industry just doesn't know what to do. Again, they look at everything at one broad brush and let's just make it green. Well, I say, let's look at some of the finite issues we have to deal with. You know, we have issues with mercury and concrete because of the fly ash that's used. So if somebody already has a heavy metal poisoning, we need to avoid fly ash. Uh, if, if somebody has, uh, again, mold sensitivity or has, has been poisoned by mold because of a previous home, I'm looking at the design of the home and saying, we got to change things up here because as much as we try to eliminate air infiltration, it's going to happen sure. because somebody along the way will just make a, an honest mistake at a flashing point or, sure. or somewhere in a penetration. Just virtue of the fact, just movement in the building. You know, exactly. Just over a period of time, things it fail. happens. Everything fails eventually. Exactly. So yeah. let's let's um, try to protect against that proactively because I don't want you to have a mold problem four years down the road. Mm -hmm. And so we look at things, again, like that. We're, we're really trying to focus on exactly what the problems are. And if somebody says, we have no health issues right now, but we'd like to keep it that way. Sure. All right, so now I'm going to be giving the pros and cons of every step until we come up with a, um, a almost a specification like we would do in commercial construction mm -hmm. of how this home needs to be put together. I mean, I'd argue that all these parameters are important and they all should be considered. And then, like, I guess what you're what you're suggesting is that you you look at it and then you prioritize because they, you have to prioritize. A, because you have a finite amount of resources and money bingo. to build. You know, you bingo. can't like in a perfect world, you do everything and you do it absolutely perfect. But okay, that's, we don't all have those resources. We don't, you know, we, we can't the, all build at, rockets to fly up to space and stuff, you know, it's like, you know <laughs> as, as much as everybody says to me, I want to build the perfect home. It's not possible. You no. will drive yourself to the poor house no. or the nut house before either of those happen. Any of this happens. You so, know, it's but, but you, you can, you can build a much better home than you probably would have built if you didn't consider these things. Well, without a that, question, that's, without that much course. more money, too. Without a question, Bob. Yeah. I think I think the, the the difference is though. So many clients come to me now with uh, unrealistic expectations of what's of what can be done, or unreal expectations of what they think that the that they're going to get if they don't ask these questions. Um, there's a there's a middle ground there, and I think that. The building industry is getting better. It is starting to clean itself up somewhat. But on the other hand, there's a lot of areas that they're just completely avoiding because it's just easier to avoid it than to have the conversation. And so um, that's what I try to do is bring these points up to the point where we've now argued both sides of it. I can argue for it and argue against it. What have you decided now that we have made an, you know, an, an educated decision on this? What's the best may, way moving forward? And does it fit within the budget? And does it fit within the aesthetic?
I mean, I can, I can argue that even today, you know, it, it, 2022, you still see new construction, especially in the residential, you know, home home market where mm-hmm. flashings are improperly installed. You know, oh, like yes. windows aren't properly flashed. They're sealed at the bottom. They tape the bottom. It's like it, just concepts that they should have gotten, you know, 50 years ago. But at the very least, they should have gotten at least 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, and, and you see like as a consultant going out in prop, you know, in buildings and what's the number one failure point that ends up leading to mold issues. Most of the times, if it's not a catastrophic water event, it's right. failed flashings. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's almost, you know, around windows or doorways or, exactly or you know, roof right. flashings or something. That's how the water's getting into the building detail into the building envelope usually. Exactly. Right. And, and, and these are, these are things that shouldn't be failing because they're failed just through sheer negligence. Uh, yeah. We have I technology think... that can do it, do it right. You know, I think it's negligence, but it's also arrogance. It's arrogance ah, okay. by by the industry, the professionals, these contractors who have said, I've been doing this for 30 years. I know what I'm doing. Like I said to you before, yeah. I've been golfing for that long and I still stink. Yeah, Just yeah, because right, right. you do something doesn't make you an expert. Yeah, you have to do something well to become an expert. Right. And, yeah. and for me, yeah. I learn something new from my customers every single day. I have to learn in order to evolve. And I think this is where the industry gets themselves into trouble because they think they found the best way to go moving forward, but they're not learning more. They're not they're not yeah. eager to learn more. Well, because but it's because the, you know, think about it in the home construction, the mar- the margins are very low. Yes. Especially in the spec housing. Forget it. There's yes. like the, they're working on like slivers of profit margins. Right. So they don't they're not looking for anything that's going to take away even one iota of, a, you know, bottom line dollar because they, they don't have much to work with. So I, I yeah, get that. Not, that's part of yeah. the problem. They're not getting paid to learn. They're getting paid to build. Right. I understand that completely. Uh, and, and I respect that, you know, I'm a business owner myself and, and I don't, I don't do this just because I love my customers. You know, I'm trying to, you know, employ people and and so forth and keep my business going. I can't preach sustainability if I can't sustain my own business. Right. So, right. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's a true, that's a true point. You know, we, we're not working in a vacuum. I mean, right. you know, we have to, we, we do have to, we do have to, 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 meet, to meet the daily and monthly bills. But you know, what's interesting in pre-show we talked about, it, I was involved with a, uh, uh, a Prado Homes house mm-hmm. that was at, a, it was uh, professed to, they were looking to build green properties. There was in 2009 when NAHB just came out with their new green standard. Mm-hmm. We were trying to be the first Emerald. And oh my goodness, it's like the, the, the pushback that I got as the consultant on the project for the, for the GC mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to deal with these parameters we did we 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 literally made the guys that were doing the window flashing we actually brought in a manufacturer and taught a class there for four hours and made (laughs) them sit there and watch on mock-up models how to actually flash a window and these guys same thing like i've been doing this 30 years yeah you've been doing it wrong for 30 years dude (laughs) it's like you know because we had them show us first how they do and they're taping the bottom of the window which is just (sighs) like are you kidding me like okay yeah so you just trapped all the water into the wall detail to create a create a mold problem in a year or two yep Hello. Yeah, exactly but just right. basic like one-on-one stuff. Sure. But it was interesting at the end of it. We actually, I thought we made some headway because at least with this one builder and his subs, they learned a lot. Oh yeah. They hated oh, yeah. me though. You know, you, you bring up a, a, a short, I know we're running close on time, but a yeah, short story a about over. a project I was involved with here in Wisconsin many years ago is the first model home to be built to the lead. I think platinum standard for lead for homes. Um, it was one of the old, only model homes built to this standard. I remember the the local building association uh, was marketing this, and I was involved in the home 
very slightly. I just supplied some material, had no input whatsoever in the design of the home. But when the home was open for tours, I was really excited about it because I thought, here, this is great. We finally have an example. And I brought a lot of my friends, a lot of my clients, some professionals. Uh, matter of fact, a really good friend of mine who was a professional uh, interior designer, she also had severe chemical sensitivities. She walked in the house and walked out in 30 seconds. And she said, I can't be here. Like, what, what do you mean you can't be here? This is the, this is the greenest of the green, you know, at the time homes right. built. And she goes, something in here is, is causing a, a headache. I got to get out. Well, after research, after I started doing some, some testing, I found the so-called environmentally friendly carpet was off-gassing toxic levels of formaldehyde. Great. The, you know, the company who donated the cabinet um, closet system used um, MDF and it was full of formaldehyde. And That's, so, yeah, totally. It's totally again. These are things that are forgotten about uh, in in the the uh, checklists, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because they meet other requirements. And, right, when and they're just looking for points. I mean, when they're doing for, these yes, systems, that's the chasing. problem. With, you know, you put a bicycle rack in, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> put a bike rack in, and now you don't have to put in the non-toxic cabinets. You just saved about $250,000 in the in the, in the the condo cost. But, you know, it's unreal. Uh, it, it's so, frustrating. But it, I learned early on that we cannot rely on, on checklists and regulations and Anything that's put together, there's got to be a reason why. There's got to be a reason why some things are allowed and some things aren't. So I, my own checklist is I use a little bit of everything. And then mm -hmm. I throw a little bit of CS into this, which is common sense. Ah, it, oh, that's not common, though. No, it's not common at all. At that's kind all. of a problem. It is. And so uh, I guess that's what makes me and, and what we do here at, at Green Design Center unique is that we really – we really look at things from a standpoint of, you know, I'm a homeowner too, and I've got my own health issues and I, I don't want to live in a, in a home that's, that's unhealthy. And, and uh, I know there are checklists out there and there are regulations and so forth, but you know, if you really worry about living in that home, you got to look at it from a, from a human health holistic standpoint first. Yeah. And there's just, there's so, it's, it, there's so many parameters. It's daunting. We never really touched on the mechanical systems, right. but you know, that's one of the things that I think, is blatantly missing in most new construction for residences, especially in the United States totally is right. outside air, you know, mm -hmm. air, air exchange rates. Uh, you know, we, you know, we here, you tend to try to achieve them by having bath fans that run on timers and things like that, which that that's to me, the lowest possible way you could make, you know, make air change standards by drawing air through interstitial spaces in the building, the unplanned pathways. It's, it's not, exactly. the way, it's not the way to do it. I mean, yeah, you get air changes, but you know, where's the air coming from, but you know, we should be designing mechanical ventilation, right? In a perfect world, the box is very tight. And then we mechanically control the ventilation mm -hmm. and properly circ circulate and filter and process the air for humidity and condition, you know, like, and that's in a perfect world. The, it's yeah, a closed right. chamber that we control very, you know. Sure. Well, right. and, and I know that I'm, I know a lot of your followers and listeners and other professionals that uh, you're, you, you're involved with may cringe when I say this. This is my own personal opinion. Somebody always asked me, uh, what's your opinion on, on a, a breathable wall system versus a non-breathable wall system? Uh you know, what, what, what I rather see. Well, I live in Wisconsin. So what I want to see is I think it's actually healthier to live in a, in a hermetically sealed box um, that, but you have to put in uh fresh air intake, air exchange systems to bring in air where and when you want it. Mm 
Mm-hmm. It, it, to your point, Bob, if you if you build a home that the wall is um, not completely airtight, and there are penetrations, and and mm-hmm. you, this is where we run into the, the problems. Sure, air is coming in and bringing with it moisture. Right, that moisture gets locked in that cavity wall, and now we're we're in a world of hurt. Yeah, and, and really, a quarter inch gap brings in so much moisture. It's crazy when you look at the actual data. How you know from a building science perspective of what happens, right. it's crazy. A little so I, I do think that a lot of moisture. There's, there's a either the wall system is fully breathable, you know, as if we're you know, we're doing something down in South Florida, and it's going to be a you know a block wall system with you know that that allows for that transmission, or it's got to be something that is completely hermetically sealed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, triple pane, uh, Shuko windows, all that, mm-hmm. that, you know, and, and then you bring in fresh air when and where you want it. I, I, and I, I actually, um, I pretty much agree with that philosophy. I, mm-hmm. I would rather see the box tight mm-hmm. and mechanically control right. the parameters, you know, right. literally, you know, and, and really, you know, very smartly, scientifically, you know, have things, right. you're monitoring humidity, you're monitoring CO2, you're monitoring everything that's going on in the space and you have stuff that is smart control systems you know right. direct digital control now, realistically uh, realistically awesome. can you do that which is why we have to do all these other measures in the right. wall systems i understand that uh but if i had my way that's how i'd do it <laughs> yeah well but there's another reason for why that makes more sense because again you know we're very u.s centric with all the stuff we talk about right. you know so the thought of outside air makes sense for the most part in the united states you go to india or other places outside air is awful bringing mm. in outside air will literally make people die you know, it's mm-hmm. like the air, there is no clean air outside. <laughs> right. So they, they seal buildings up super tight because it makes sense. But we're experiencing wildfires. I mean, that is, you know, elevated right. airborne particulates, especially right. on the West Coast. There's going to be more of this mm-hmm. where and that comes across the whole country. So that yeah. these sometimes the outside air is not that good. So that's why, again, I think you're talking about controlling the ventilation parameters and actually controlling the quality of the if you're using For outside sure. air, you know, having filtration and you For know sure. and whatever is necessary maybe even carbon filtration in really yeah. bad areas where yeah, you're actually I, I recommend carbon on every project i do mm-hmm. yeah it makes sense it makes mm-hmm. sense wow well we did run out of time uh <laughs> and i you know it, well i we have to have you back because i have a whole list of points here that we didn't nice. get to it's very frustrating <laughs> very good um but that's okay you know yeah. that's fine um great great conversation um we uh you know i just float up so you know again uh for those of you who've been watching it's uh and andrew pace he's the founder of the green design center and you can find out more about them at the greendesigncenter.com uh i know we had some questions here up in the chat that we didn't get to i apologize everybody uh because well you know we got 60 ish minutes we we're taking a couple extra but um we will uh i'll We'll take some of those questions that were there and post them uh, in the comments on the Healthy Indoors Global Community after. And hopefully uh, Andy can get in there, maybe take a look at it and, and comment back. No uh, we definitely want to have you on again, though. That's, that's oh, I look sure. forward to it. What a great conversation. Uh, fabulous. So now it's time to do all that wonderful promotional stuff. So um, many of you are watching the show today on the uh, Healthy Indoors Online Global Community. And that's great. Um but if you're not watching it on there, you should be. And that's at global.healthyindoors.com. It is a centric platform that allows you to um, get content like this, free content that's open to the world, but even more more so than just the content. Uh, this is a place where, you know, we sure, we stream shows and we do everything else, but it's it's a place where you can actually communicate. And, you know, it's, just, it's a lot like a uh, social media platform. We have, uh, it's just, it's just a great place and we're, you know, we're really encouraging you to take a look at that and, and, uh, you know, 
dip your toes in the water there. It's uh, it's it's quite a unique platform because it is the only one that we know of that's actually completely centric to the indoor environmental uh, issue. Um, we have the August edition of Healthy Indoors magazines out soon. I know Susan Valenti, our publisher, is somewhere online here, and she'll probably chime in and chat and tell us when it's coming out. But it's coming out soon. Uh, so keep your eyes open for the uh, August edition. But hey, you know what? You don't just have to go to the August edition. Um, you know, we, uh, uh, we have all the editions. In fact, this is our birthday. Uh, today's the fourth. Um, and we actually founded or launched Healthy Indoors magazine on August 6th, 2013. So our, we're experiencing, ready for this, our, our ninth birthday. It's crazy. Um, we're actually, we, we've been here forever. Um, so if you go to healthyindoors.com, that's where all the back issues of the magazine are. Um, you can access all that and uh, read all the, you know, read all the issues, look at all our great content. It's all free to the world. Uh, so we'd love to have you uh, participate and join us there. Um, so we'll be back again next week. Uh, same bat time, same bat channel. Um, for the Healthy Indoors live show. Again, I want to thank our guest, Andy Pace. Uh, great conversation. We're going to be hearing more from this gentleman. I know, you know, it's like, uh, and real important topics, Andy. So looking forward to well, seeing you soon. Thank you. I really appreciate speaking to your audience and, and uh, making everybody aware. I'm sure they already are, but uh, I like to point these things out. So I, I really appreciate it. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, without further ado, we'll see you all next week. Uh, on the Healthy Indoors Live Show. Until then, I'm Bob Krell. Uh, stay healthy and safe.